from WBUR Boston and NPR. I'm Tom Asbrook, and this is On Point. Every region has its literature. The state of Texas is so big, it's a region all by itself. A region that is hot right now with oil boom, immigration, drought, and riches and poverty. This hour On Point, Texas literature, Texas writers, Texas issues. You can join us on air or online where this conversation is always on. How do you read Texas these days? Beyond cowboys and cattle, what's the new Texas? What's it tell us about the country? Join us anytime at onpointradio.org or on Twitter and Facebook at On Point Radio. We will talk today with outstanding Texas writers Sarah Bird, Sergio Troncoso, and Philip Meyer. Joining me first from the studios of member station KUT in Austin, Texas, is Claiborne Smith, editor-in-chief for Kirkus Media, literary director of the San Antonio Book Festival, former literary director of the Texas Book Festival, Claiborne Smith. Clay Smith, welcome to On Point. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. How do you define Texas literature these days, sir? You know, it's vast and broad. I mean, um, for example, if you look at the case of Robert Cairo, who is you know, a Jewish man who was born in the Bronx, he has devoted most of his life to writing about Texas and his really, you know, magisterial bios about um, LBJ. Yes. So here's a case of somebody who didn't even start out here and is one of the best Texas writers that we have. Um, but then, you know, for a writer to be born here in Texas um, or to have been raised here is really a, a kind of gift to a writer because the imagination and, and sort of self-perception that Texans have about ourselves, I think maybe that annoys the rest of the country and maybe the world, but that's a real gift to a writer. So, you know, Texas writing is a, is a vast thing that, that encompasses people who are from here and, and writers who are not at all. Larry McMurtry, of course, sat with his latest, his 46th unbelievable number. He's 78 now, uh, born into a Texas family, old Texas family, but wrote all the way back in 1968 in Narrow Grave. I realized the place where all my stories start is the heart faced suddenly with the loss of its country, its customary and legendary range. I had begun to suspect that home was less a place than an empty page. Surely that's true for many Texas writers now, many of whom, uh, and, we'll, and we'll speak with a couple today, uh, are, are not Texas born and bred, and yet that is the place from which they write. Yeah, no, it, 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 it's interesting because, and, and, that, and that's a beautiful um, passage that, that McMurtry um, has there. Uh, but I, I think when, when people who don't, you know, who have heard you know, Texas literature or Texas writing for the first time, they probably think of, you know, cowboys and ranches. Um, and, you know, that, that's a nice tradition that we have. Um, and one of our guests today, Philip Meyer, is, is, is writing about that. So, um, but, but, you know, as Texas has become a more urban state, um, its literature is, is moving there as well. So uh, we, we've, we've got both of, you know, the city and the, and the country going on here. Let, let's begin to bring in our writers today. We're so glad to have them with us. Sarah Bird joins us right now from Seattle. She's on book tour. She's been voted best Austin author, as in Austin, Texas, four times by the readers of the Austin Chronicle, member of the Texas Literary Hall of Fame and Texas Institute of Letters, author of Virgin of the Rodeo, Alamo House, and her latest, Far From Texas, Above the East China Sea. Sarah Bird, thank you very much for joining us today. 
Hello, Tom. I'm delighted to be here. So you've written plenty about Austin and plenty about Texas. So this time you're way out Okinawa way. You've got uh, Okina- yeah, military yeah. childhood in your own uh, in your own past that took you all over the place. Given, all over the place. Yeah, what does it mean then to be a Texas writer? Do you self-identify that way, Sarah? Oh, that's a great question. That's a great question, and I would say I'm always just a little startled when I am identified as a Texas writer. I'm always identified as a Texas writer, but uh, I, you know, my identity was fully formed by growing up in the military, and so I came to Texas um, with that perspective. And the perspective of the military child is is that of an outsider, that is of an observer. I also studied anthropology and photography, so I was sort of a triple observer, but. Uh, Texas. Oh, my God, what a gift from God that state is to a writer, and especially for one who doesn't grow up there, who who is not sort of washed in the blood. And all these, uh, the florid extravagances are new and very impressive. And and I, I was just flabbergasted. I was constantly flabbergasted by Texas and uh, the th- the excesses, the um, mostly though, and, and you're getting to that here, what uh, what astonished me was how much Texans identify with being Texan and, you know, having grown up in a military family, especially growing up overseas, there's absolutely no state identity. Certainly there wasn't in my family. And, and the idea of states was the idea of these 50 fingers all clenched in a fist ready mm-hmm. to defend America. So I was American. There's the military child of you for sure. <laughs> and then you come to I was Texas. The, the, the tip of the sword. Yeah. yeah. Clay, it must mean something, though. That here's Sarah with that very wide-ranging childhood all over the place. She comes to Texas for education first, as many have. Austin in particular. Four times voted best Austin author. That's Texas throwing its arms around someone without Texas in the blood. Well, I mean, Texas, we, you know, we like to think of ourselves as being very friendly Uh but but I mean this is part of what I think both Sarah and I are saying is that the the you know the self perception and the imagination that Texans have about ourselves is so um, sort of grand. It, it's annoying to some people, but uh, it's really is as Sarah says um, a gift to a writer because you know that's where you can either poke fun or you know mm-hmm. make the myth bigger, um, and so. Uh, you know, I, I feel sorry for writers from Delaware because what do they have to write about? <laughs> <laughs> let, let, let's fill on, uh, fill our uh, batch on out here. Uh, Sarah, stand by, uh, Clay. Yes. Sergio Troncoso joins us right now. Again, not in Texas, joining us from New York. Grew up in a shanty town just outside of El Paso. Member of the Texas Institute of Letters. Still spends plenty of time there. Writes a lot about Texas. Uh, author of From This Wicked Patch of Dust, uh, The Last Tortilla and Other Stories, co-editor of Our Lost Border, Essays on Life Amid the Narco Violence, won first place in the International Latino Book Awards for Best Latino-Focused Nonfiction, Sergio Trancoso in New York today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Tom. You grew up, you headed out, you go back. So are you a Texas writer, Sergio? Absolutely. Uh, I feel like uh, this going back and forth has given me in many ways, a better perspective. Um, I, I love James Joyce, and I always remember him when talking about Ireland uh, and how he better understood it from the outside. But, uh, you know, I grew up the new pioneers, the, the Latino-Mexican immigrants in a shanty town of Isleta, a quarter of a mile from Mexico, but in Texas, and uh, without electricity or running water, and ended up at Harvard and Yale. And so I talk about that journey in many of my books. 
when you hear Sarah, who's adopted Texas, talk about its florid extravagance, its excesses, as a kid who grew up in a colonia, in a shanty town, is Texas a state of uh, florid extravagances to you or of poverty? Well, for me, it's, you know, it's um, the desert, it's El Paso, it's uh, the beauty of the mountains, and it's stark beauty and, and poverty. But also these communities along the border, certainly um, in South Texas and, and, uh, and, and West Texas, that are often overlooked, uh, where there's uh, dire poverty, but also, you know, intelligent people talking about ideas. And I think that's one of the missions I have had as a writer, to bring this community and their voices to to the, a greater world. Are you, as Latino writer, are you fully embraced today? Do you feel embraced as a Texas writer by Texas, all of Texas? <laughs> uh, I would say yes. I, I, you know, how do you, how do you measure that? Um, certainly, I don't know. I you're a writer. Being, you're supposed to have great antenna for that sort of thing, right? Well, I mean, I, I think it's changing. I, I don't think uh, it's always been a uh, loving embrace, but certainly. People like uh, W.K. Stratton, Kip Stratton from the Texas Institute of Letters, who's a past president, he welcomed me in and he asked me to, to judge a contest this year. And I think the more <clears throat> Texas becomes Latino, this becomes a matter of course. You know, right now, the majority of children in Texas, in high schools and grade schools, are Latino for the first time ever. So the future of Texas is definitely Latino. There's no question about it. And, uh, you know, that's uh, in El Paso where I grew up. I was never a minority. We were the majority for at least 100 years. And when I went to Harvard, people said, well, you don't act like a minority. I said, well, I, I, I wasn't. And I'd, I expect to, to change those things in Texas as, uh, as the decades go on. Clay Smith, is Texas throwing its arms around its full diversity these days on the literary front? I, I think it's trying to. I mean, th there were two anthologies published in the 2000s. One is by Don Graham, and it's um, titled Lone Star Literature, and that was out from Norton in um, 2003. Uh, and you know, it, it's a, it's notable that the, the state is so large that he had divide he had to divide that book into the West, the border, the South, and town and city um, <laughs> as ways of organizing the you know the, yeah. the literature regions within. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then in 2007, uh, Dagoberto Gill published um, Echo en Tejas, an anthology of Texas-Mexican literature, as, as a response, you know. And, and so it, it's been, you know, there were debates, but it's been nice to see people um, publishing big books to play out that debate. Clay Smith, please stand by in Austin, Texas. Sergio Trancoso in New York. Sarah Bird in Seattle. Texas writer Philip Meyer joins us in just a moment. We're talking with Texas writers about Texas. Corsicana Lemonade from Austin's white denim behind us here, going through the map of Texas. I'm Tom Ashbrook. This is On Point. We'll be right back. I'm Tom Ashbrook. This is On Point. 
We're talking this hour about Texas writers, with Texas writers, about Texas, Texas issues, Texas literature, the Lone Star State's view of the world, and maybe Texas identity now. Clay Smith is with us, editor-in-chief for Kirkus Media, literary director for the San Antonio Book Festival. He's done it for the whole state there as well. Joins us from KUT in Austin, Texas. Sarah Bird is with us from Seattle, where she's on book tour. Uh, Chosen best Austin author four times by readers of the Austin Chronicle, author of Virgin of the Rodeo, Alamo House, Above the East China Sea, her wonderful new book getting great reviews. Sergio Troncoso is here from New York, grew up down just outside El Paso, member of the Texas Institute of Letters, author of From This Wicked Patch of Dust, The Last Tortilla and Other Stories, Are Lost, Bordery, co-edited. And with us right now from New York is Philip Meyer, a Texas transplant into Austin, where he's been for the last 10 years, author of The Sun, finalist for this year's Pulitzer Prize in Fiction, author of American Rust, originally a Baltimore guy, now Austin man. Philip Meyer, thank you very much for being with us. Howdy, Tom. You've written deeply about it. You've uh, what, eaten the buffalo liver and all the rest. Are you a Texas writer, Philip? I, I, I guess I am. I think I was a little nervous about claiming that uh, mantle because you know, when, you, when you grow up elsewhere, the, the, you know, there is a sense, a strong sense of Texas pride and Texas identity. But uh, I guess once the book came out, a bunch of my old Texas friends said, you know, boy, you should start considering yourself a Texan now. Uh, so you, now you, went, you went to Texas, I guess, to uh, in part to, to buff your writing, to learn the, the, the art. And you ended up writing an epic of three generations of Texas settlers, conquerors, cattlemen, oilmen, and women. Um, what ultimately drew you into that? That almost goes back to giant and all, all of that. One th- thinks from a distance. What, is the magnetism so great in that history, even when you write beyond it, that it sucked you in? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. In fact, um, I, I went to Texas uh, for graduate school, uh, as you said, to do an mm-hmm. MFA, and I, I wrote my first uh, published book, American Rust, while I was in school. But um, the three years I, I was there, you know, just taking classes, the, the state itself w- was so compelling and so magnetic. I knew that I was going to write that, that 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 the next book, The Sun, which is now now out, um, was going to be about Texas and was going to be about the sort of the Texas mythology and and in a way the, looking at America through this lens of, of Texas. Does that mean that you in your writing or in this book are a prisoner of the old mythology or is it somehow still liberating? Is it somehow still a, a pattern, a mold that informs our contemporary understanding of Texas, maybe the world beyond? Well, so the thing about the mythology is that um, it is it is mythology. It's mostly uh, an invention, and so I think I knew as little as as anyone else from Baltimore about Texas and about the West when I got there. But because I was an outsider, I was forced to do so much research. I read about three hundred and fifty nonfiction books, and um, forced to kind of learn about the land because again, I had sort of no native knowledge of it. And what becomes pretty clear when when you start studying this stuff is that. Almost all of the history of the West, almost all of, in a way, the compelling mythology of Texas, it's a bit of an invention. Even the cattle industry, we think of this defining Texas, um, it was never actually the biggest part of the Texas economy. Cotton was bigger than cattle for pretty much every year of the cattle industry's existence. Um, Cotton didn't get displaced as the economic driver of Texas until about 1930, and that was by oil. You know, so there was never a time, you know, despite our, our thinking of Texas as a Western state and despite our thinking of Texas as a kind of a cowboy 
growing cattle state, you know, there, there was never a point at which um, you know cotton and sort of a southern uh, agricultural mentality was not the sort of uh, dominant over over cattle, for instance. And then, of course, oil comes in and replaces all that, and that's what ties Texas to um, sort of modern geopolitics and even the politics of the Middle East. Philip Meyer's latest book, The Sun, looks at all that over generations. Sergio Troncoso is with us. Sarah Bird is here. Clay Smith. We've got a full bank of Texas writers with us. And uh, the calls are coming in. Dan in Austin, Texas. Dan, thank you very much for calling. You're on the air. What do you see in Texas and Texas writing, Dan? Hi, Tom. Um, I, uh, this is the Northeast. Uh, I have a bunch of customers down here in, in Austin, and um I came back and forth more and more and more. I finally moved my business, and it felt like a blanket was lifted off of me. Um, just the whole atmosphere here uh, makes it easy for me to create jobs. created 50 uh, high-paying jobs, and, uh, it, you know, I, I don't ever consider going back to the Northeast. It's just such a great place to have a business and raise a family. It, it, and it's such a different culture here, and very cosmopolitan than I thought it would be. Dan, you're breaking up on us, but I think I've got the gist of it. Dan, another migrant to Texas from the Northeast and says he feels free there, Sarah Bird, that uh, he's become a job creator in Texas, that the blanket of oppressive regulation and all the rest is off him. Certainly, this is the Texas reputation. People talk about the Texas miracle in the economy right now. There's more than one side to that. But do you see outsiders coming in, Sarah, with that reaction to Texas? I'm free. Hello, Sarah. Are you there? Oh, Philip, maybe you can pick it up. You you made that journey. Yes, sure. I mean, I, I think that uh, business owners definitely have that uh, sense. There, there certainly is less regulation. There's no state tax, um, and 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 it, it's. I can imagine in many ways it's a much better place to grow um, a, a business than you know the highly regulated states of the Northeast. Um, of course, that comes at uh, at a bit of a cost. Um, the the sort of uh, Texas, I think, is sort of a very good place to be. From if you look at the pure economics of it, it's a very good place to be. You know, upper middle class and uh, middle class. It's, it's maybe a less good place to be uh, if you're sort of born into the the, the sort of lower classes. If you're born, um, you know, in, into a poor uh, area, it's maybe a, a bit harder to get out of that. I mean, Sergio, of course, is a sort of immediate counterpoint to this to this argument. But um, yeah, I think everything comes at a price. You know, so the, this. Um, this sort of lack of regulation is, of course, amazing for starting businesses. Um, but d- does this low tax environment have some uh, broader social cost? And I think that's the question that the Texans are going to be facing in the next you know, couple of decades. Sergio, you grew up with, uh, I think, still a- an outhouse and no uh, no, no um, water, uh, uh, so, so city water, and all the rest there. How do you? What are you thinking when you hear? Our callers say, I'm, it's free, it's great, I, you know, this is, the, this is the path to affluence and business, job creation. With your experience, Sergio, how's it look? You know, it, it's not, uh, I, I, don't, I think there's another side, and that's that sometimes, um, you know, poor people, especially uh, Mexican immigrants, are exploited. Um, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough hoe, you know, road to hoe. Um, you see the lack of regulation and sometimes environmental pollution. You know, you see this in fracking in South Texas. I just uh, read a series of articles by John McCormick from the San Antonio Express News in which he mm-hmm. talks a lot about that. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, the lack of regulation, I think, is great for business creation, but you also want to bring um, more schools and, and better um, 
you know, universities in South Texas and, and more resources to these areas that, that sometimes are ignored by, by Austin. And, um, you know, and I think that's, that's a big issue as well. It's not just sort of the freedom from regulation, but it's also um, sometimes the freedom from responsibility towards everybody in Texas, not just uh, the, the people who are doing well. Austin, of course, being the state capital. Sarah Bird, I think we've got you back now. What about, Hello. Uh, hi. Our, we had our first caller out of Austin saying, moved to Texas from out of state and felt free there. You've you've made the move yourself. You've seen many others do it. What do you say to that uh, reaction? Uh, you know, to Texas? I, I think uh, uh, Philip and Sergio made some wonderful comments, and they're 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 talking about the dark side of the frontier spear at that individualistic bravado that powered Texas through the frontier days, and is you know is it still is it still workable in a modern society? And do we uh, do we need a governor who carries a uh, sidearm when he's out jogging to shoot or claim to shoot a coyote. Is that really, I mean, is is there too much being trapped in, in the myth? And, uh, you know, Sergio addressed that, Philip addressed that, and it takes its toll on the infrastructure and the caring for citizens. And we're, you know, number one in execution of the mentally ill. We are now uh, saying, uh, homosexuality is a disease like alcoholism. So, you know, that kind of stuff you can get away with in Texas. You know, you can get reelected in Texas, but I, I don't know that it's quite the century we're in now. Clay Smith, look across the spectrum of Texas writers these days. Do you see the literary community with roots in the whole span here, the old mythology, some of that wild freedom that our caller calls in and celebrates right into what sounds almost like some pushback against that from Sarah Bird? Yeah, I mean, there, there's going to be a novel coming out in September uh, called Love Me Back, and it's by a writer named Merritt Tierce, and she went to the University of Iowa uh, Writer's Workshop. Um, and it's a tough book that, um, you know, is a good example of the way that, you know, Texas literature, I mean, th- this book is totally set in Dallas. It's a very urban, um, kind of gritty book, and it's it's about um, women in that town, and, and in particular one woman uh, who makes a lot of mistakes, um, but is trying to get by in this kind of freewheeling uh, macho culture, and and that's the thing that you know the writers here they are talking about. I mean, but but political culture influences the culture culture. You know the the mm-hmm. way that we that each of us live every day, and that kind of lack of regulation. You know that I think it does create a more freewheeling kind of culture here um, that, that some people find difficult to uh, navigate. Philip Meyer, you, you write in The Sun. Uh, you got three generations. The last, uh, a woman, Jeannie McCullough. This is the McCullough kind of uh, clan dynasty. Uh, and she looks across history, Texas history, and sees an endless kind of blood sport of conquest and taking what people can, even ties it into the assassination of President Kennedy as she sits and looks out on the world. I wonder if you might read a little bit for us, maybe set this up and read uh, the perspective of this matriarch of an old, powerful Texas clan. Yes, sure. She's she's kind of looking back on, on her own history and, and Texas history. And uh, she, she was born in the 20s. And so she's she's seen quite a lot of it, a lot of big changes. And she's she begins this the passage talking about the, the death uh, of Kennedy and the kind of political environment um, at, at that time. 
As for JFK, it had not surprised her. The year he died, there were still living Texans who had seen their parents scalped by Comanches. The land was thirsty, something primitive still in it. On their ranch, they had, find, they had found spear points from both the Clovis and the Folsom people, and while Jesus was walking to Calvary, the Mogollon people were bashing each other with stone axes. By the time the Spanish came, there were the Suma, Humano, Manso, La Junta, Concho, and Chisos, and Doboso, the Ocana, and Cacaxtel, the Coltecans, Comicrudos. Whether those tribes had wiped out the Mogollons or were simply descended from them, no one knew. And soon enough, all of those tribes were wiped out by the Apaches, who were in turn wiped out, in Texas anyway, by the Comanches, who were finally wiped out by the Americans. A man, a life, it was barely worth mentioning. The Visigoths had destroyed the Romans, and themselves had been destroyed by the Muslims, who were destroyed by the Spanish and the Portuguese. You did not need Adolf Hitler to see that it was not a pleasant story. And yet, here she was, breathing and having these thoughts. The blood that ran through history would fill, would fill every river and ocean. But despite all the butchery, here you are. Philip Meyer reading from his The Sun. Sarah Bird, what do you make of that perspective? There's been a great response to Philip's book, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. It's a terrific read. Uh, but here's this festival of blood tied to Texas perspective <laughs> in the sense that, hey, come on, that's what life is. Let's let's battle it out. Well, that's a certainly a gorgeous, gorgeous passage yeah. and um, historically on point. <laughs> it's hard to argue with uh, with that historically. Um, it does, um, you know, kind of speak to the sort of gap there is for women and, and uh, female identity in, in the big Texas Texas story, you know, and his uh, his narrator is a female, and, and you know, she's she's reflecting on it, and she's not the one out doing the killing and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, you know, in in trying in in my kind of absorbing the Texas ethos, what I ended up doing was writing a screenplay about a true Texas story of a. Uh, woman who was a slave who was freed after the Civil War and, true story, disguised herself as a Buffalo soldier and served for, for two years in, in the Buffalo Soldiers. And that was a wonderful way for me to kind of, you know, participate in, in this great warrior tradition that Philip is, is talking about. But, you know, as, as females, I would say in general, the, the Texas, Texas writing mentality is slightly less hospitable to females than than to males it's you know it's a male culture and and you know if the current you know female doesn't want to see herself as a little helpmate you have to you have to go elsewhere fictionally Sergio there's the story of a great Texas landowning clan uh, and the great matriarch seeing all of life as, as a big battle of powers grab what you can she may not embrace it but that's the way she sees it is that is that central to the texas story certainly there's been a lot of grabbing sergio well there there has been you know certainly uh, a lot of grabbing sometimes without uh, justification land grabs from from people who have more money you know and latinos often are at the short end of the stick um and that certainly has happened 
um, repeatedly in Texas. And so, you know, the, the question to think about in terms of the Texas mythology is how much of this story, this other side, the outsiders, the, los de abajo, those people from down below, how much of that has worked itself into Texas literature? It's completely in the news right now with all the enormous immigration stories, energy stories, Texas in the middle of it all. Sergio Troncoso, please stand by, author of From This Wicked Patch of Dust. Sarah Bird, author of Above the East China Sea, her latest, with us from Seattle today, but Austin writer. Clay Smith with Kirkus Media there at KUT. And Philip Meyer, author of The Sun. We're talking with Texas writers about Texas. A little narco corrido here from Larry Hernandez. This is On Point. We'll be right back. Tom Ashbrook, this is On Point. We're talking this hour with Texas writers about Texas, Texas issues, Texas literature, the Lone Star State's view of the world, and maybe Texas identity these days, when it is in the middle of so many big stories around energy, again, oil boom going on, fracking, oil boom, immigration, American, well, that's all over the news, American politics from Ted Cruz uh, to Wendy Davis and right on around Texas is looming large once again. Philip Meyer is with us. He's a Texas transplant to Austin. His latest, The Sun, final, full of finalists for the Pulitzer Prize in Fiction uh, last year. Sergio Trancoso is with us. Grew up just outside El Paso. Is uh, from the wicked patch of dust out in 2011. The Last Tortilla and other stories earlier. Our Lost Border. Essays on life amid the narco violence he co-edited just last year. Sarah Bird is with us from Seattle. Virgin of the Rodeo, Alamo House, and her latest is Above the East China Sea. On book tour with that right now. And Clay Smith is with us, editor-in-chief of Kirkus Media, literary director for the San Antonio Book Festival. Lots of interesting stuff online for all of you. Uh, of course, uh, they're, they're asking if we include Austin in Texas. Some Austinites and many ex-Austin Texans would not. We've got a listener who says here. Uh, here's Laura moved to Austin in 1978. Best place in the state and perhaps the country. Uh, but then we've got plenty of pushback, my, my friends, as well, from outside Texas. TJ says, aside from Molly Ivins, I didn't think Texans could write. Adam says, what do I think of Texas? Nothing, nothing at all. It's a land of guns, religious zealotry, racist, misogynists. Christopher says, Texas, succeed already. We're sick of you. Ooh, we've got to look at it. There's, there's that out there as well. Monique in Creedmoor, <laughs> Texas. Monique, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Tom. This is a great show. I'm really enjoying it. I'm actually a transplant from Boston. Used to listen to you all the time. I was up there for 14 years. Great. And I've been in in the Austin area for just over four years. And I found ironic right off the bat that Massachusetts, with all of its uh, liberal politics, is, is vastly more uptight than the you know Republican atmosphere here. Now, I also think it's inaccurate to. Uh, think of Austin as Texas, you know, because so much of Texas surrounding Austin is very, very different culturally. Um, I'm a musician, and we recently went out to the, uh, we played some shows on the Permian Basin out on, uh, out in Midland and Odessa. Yeah. And they're in the middle of a huge oil boom out there, a renewed oil boom. 
And I was really afraid by what I saw. It was very bleak. Um, in Midland, there was this kind of absurd level of, of wealth. And then crossing over the, the line to Odessa, where the oil derricks and all the workers are, just abject poverty. I mean, it, it seemed like I was in a, a third world country. Uh, and, uh, Midland, of course, where President George W. Bush came up, and Odessa, uh, right around the corner, as you say. I, I, I want to talk about that with our panel, but Monique, to this issue of feeling freer, that's really interesting. You, you've moved from the Northeast to Texas, and you two felt freer. What does that mean exactly? In what way? Well, um, well, not having to pay $1,200 a month to live in a shoebox is <laughs> okay. wearing there's, different. There's the I rent. Know. Let's start right there. <laughs> Too damn high, or maybe not. Yeah. yeah, and there seems to be a lot of, you know, the deregulation is a double-edged sword, you know, like a lot of people um, are able to live a more bohemian way here in the Austin area. I mean, there are people uh, taking advantage of like the Airbnb thing and opening up, you know, little kind of DIY bed and breakfasts and people living more off the land just outside of Austin. Um, you know, it really, there is kind of a feeling of, of like, the Wild West here, um, you know, in certain ways. But there's also, I think there's still also a lot of, uh, a lot of racism here. And it's, it's thinly veiled, but it is definitely here. And it seems to be, you know, from my perspective, very much rooted in the true Texans. You know, a lot of the older Texans that I come in contact with, you know, outside of Austin, um, you know, I still hear people using the N-word. I still p- hear people talking down to Hispanics. I'm Hispanic, you know. Um, so it's still, there's progress, but there's still, there are a lot of things here that make me think of things like, uh, you know, uh, there will be blood, yeah. you know. Yeah. Is- yeah. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Monique, I so appreciate your call, and good luck there. Sergio Troncoso. Speak to this. Here's Monique, uh, Hispanic, moving into Texas, feeling simultaneously kind of exhilarated, and then out in the middle of the oil boom uh, and the hard scrabble side of that, uh, put off at the same time. Do you think it's a uh, would be a common experience for somebody coming into Texas? Oh, sure. I mean, I think uh, certainly seeing two two or many different kinds of Texas, a very poor, ignored. Um, and vilified Texas, and then you know these these places in Dallas or or wherever where you have this opulence, and and certainly the racism. You know, I mean, I certainly have faced it myself. But you know, in in El Paso, it's different. And in many ways, I would also include Austin and El Paso outside of Texas mm. because they're very different. They were actually the only two cities that went for Obama uh, in Texas, and uh, yeah, two to one. And, you know, it's a different kind of mentality there. And and I think this uh, going somewhere and saying, well, you know, you don't belong here, that's ridiculous because, of course, you know, Mexicans were in Texas before Texas was Texas. Well, what it about was that, Sergio? Te- it was Texas. <laughs> yeah, yes, of course. Let me ask you about that. I was reading one of your short stories, Angie Luna, and right. it's set right where you grew up, and the young man is having a wonderful romantic evening to begin with, with, a, with a beautiful young woman from across the border in Mexico. A Mexican Marilyn Monroe. Yes, no less. And one of the first things that she's probing with him is how Mexican is he still, or how Americanized right. is he? What about the Texas-Mexican-Chicano community and that tension? Is that a, is that a vivid tension? Is that historical? 
Sure. I mean, even within the community itself, because, of course, you have Chicanos and Mexicanos who have made it in Texas and had done very well financially. And then the new immigrants, of course, well, you know, let's keep them out. Let's not help them. You know, we had to do it. Uh, my mother is like this, by the way. My mother is uh, to the right of Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> um, you know, just we made it. We didn't uh, – we qualified for welfare, and my mother said we are not going to take this. We – you know, that's disgraceful. We have to work mm-hmm. ourselves to the bone to move up. So in some way, then she's Mexicana to the core. You know, mm-hmm. she's from Chihuahua, and my father is as well. And so in, in some ways, they're pioneers in Texas. They were in the 50s and began with nothing. So there's this, you know, diversity and conflict within the Chicano and Mexican community as well. There, there's the, the hope rivals. for the Republican Party. Right. The, well, the the, unfortunately, that's, that's what they don't understand. You know, if we, if we get over the xenophobes and simply looking at the Latino community, you know, George Bush won 40 percent of the Latino vote, which is a little scary, but possible. And if, well, thrilling you know, for George just, Bush. Right. No, well, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I'm not, but... But it's a, it is a much more diverse community, and that's simply always been true. But you know the the anti Latino wing of the of the Republican Party uh, that sim- seems to, to get nervous every time there's too many brown people in the room. You know that's uh, it's actually doing very harm to them. And if the Democrats could only exploit that, and and Wendy Davis, you know they would they would have a great turnout. Let me take John from calling from Austin, Texas, if I may. John, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Tom. Hi. Thanks for uh, taking the call. I, uh, uh, I, I kind of like to pick up on a theme that's been touched on already, but I'd like to make it a little more strong, uh, and that there is no Texas. I've lived in Texas now for over 40 years, and I've worked for Texas state government. Uh, I've worked for the health department, but every branch of state government is the same in that there, there's no way to govern this state uh, without regionalizing the approach. No public policy will apply in Texas uniformly, and it has to be regionalized. Uh, East Texas is not West Texas. The Panhandle is not South Texas. Uh, Austin is not the hill country in which it, it, in which it resides. There, there is no way that you could consider Texas a singular place. It, it is uh, completely different. And just as a little illustration of that, uh, yeah. our department made some uh, videos uh, on disaster preparedness, public health preparedness. Okay. And there was no way to make a single video that would apply across the state. That sounds crazy. Uh, Texas, <laughs> if the people in the panhandle would simply not understand it. They would not relate to it at all. Wow. In East Texas, uh, Houston... You know, Houston is a world unto itself. Yes, it's, yes. Uh, the whole thing is totally different from uh, you know drive drive eighty miles uh, west, and you're you're in a different place. Yeah, so I spent a lot of time in Houston. My brother's in Dallas. I, I I know it well. You look at it from a governing view and say there is no Texas. Clay Smith, from a literary view, would you say the same or not? You know, I mean, John raises a you know a brilliant point, and it's one of the reasons why. You know, we don't tend to have uh, very many novels um, that cover the entire state. I mean, I think Philip does does a great job of it, um, but 
you know, I, I can't think of a lot of other novels about Texas that that cover the entire state. I mean, there is we can see if the other writers here agree, but I think most people think that that the novel that put Texas writing on the map mm-hmm. in the first place was the Gay Place, uh, published by Billy Billy Lee Brammer in 1961. And just to be clear, it was 1961, and there are no gay characters in that novel (laughs) okay um but it's about billy lee worked for as a press guy for um lbj Mm -hmm. and the novel has this um, fictional governor author finstermaker who goes across the state campaigning and it's all about his personality and and the personality of the state um so i mean john is right in a political sense but but that also applies culturally you know this is a huge place and it's hard to write about it in one big book. Sarah Bird, I wonder if, I mean, here you are four times voted best Austin author, Texas writer, but does that mean that you've regionalized in a way in your own work, that you've wrapped yourself around Austin, you know, flattering, tweaking, what, all the things that you do? Is, is that the way to, to put your roots down in one part of Texas? Well, uh, you know, Austin is, is typically thought of as the blue dot in, in this angry sea of red. And that's absolutely true. I mean, it's the only place I could have flourished, I think. Um, I attempted to to look at the vastness of Texas in, in my novel, Virgin of the Rodeo, in which my it's a road story, a road yeah. book. And, and the character travels from my fictionalized Dorfburg, Texas, a small town in Texas. And, and she goes through, and she travels the rodeo circuit. And in that, you know, via, via all the strange mutant kind of rodeos that there are in Texas, which express the different cultures of Texas. She went to a chariada. She went to uh, an old timers rodeo. She went to a big city rodeo. Uh, she went to a uh, women's then called girls rodeo, a kids rodeo. And, you know, there, there are a jillion of them. And yeah. I, I sort of that way took a, took a little tour of, of Texas, you know, got the mm-hmm. different accents. You know, you get out to West Texas, and everybody sounds like they got a big pool of saliva at the bottom of their mouth that they're trying not to spit on you. Um, but it, 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 you know, it's just different worlds, different worlds, and uh, an African American rodeo. Com- Completely different, just in the same way that that there are all these little pockets in Texas, and everybody has their own world, and they find find a way to feather their their Texas nest that way. Let's go to San Antonio and Chris. Chris, thanks for calling. You're on. Hey guys, uh, I just want to call uh, and briefly say that I'm a transplant from back east. The the move has worked out great for me. No complaints at all. But uh, from the outside looking in, I think that there seems to be a tendency to promote style over substance here. Uh, I know we all saw the uh, presidential primaries last year, and if you saw Governor Perry's performance, I don't know how you could come away thinking anything other than this guy's, you know, basically an idiot. And, you know, from the stories of carrying a side on the shoe, the coyote, and all this other stuff, it it doesn't make sense to me, because back east, we don't, we don't promote people that are essentially actors, in that way. But Chris, he was, vote, he was voted into the, the governor's office by Texans who must have paid a little attention. Uh, America hasn't always, America, the American electorate has not always made the smartest choices. We are in the anniversary <laughs> of Freedom Summer, and you don't need a better example of that. Chris, we've got it. Hey, Philip Meyer, uh, Chris moves to Texas. He might, you came from Baltimore. He comes from East and says style over substance. Is it style over substance, or is it Texas living large? How have you come to see that, uh, the showmanship side of Texas, which can be very strong? 
I guess the way I think about it is that Texans are very attached to this frontier kind of uh, set of values or, you know, this and, – and that's what we're kind of facing now is this is this transition from these frontier values in, in which, you know, uh, Texans – even when you read the old literature back in the 1860s you know, and 70s, people talked about Texans having the kind of biggest heads of, of anyone, you know, at, at, in the West. And I think what we're, what we're looking at now – not necessarily the, the tail end of that, but we're watching a state which has um, consciously and conspicuously decided to identify itself according to these frontier values, as, as Sarah and Sergio and everyone have said. We're, we're watching this transition into the kind of modern era, and uh, bo- both sociologically and politically. And I think when, when you come from the outside, that's what you see. I, I, frankly, I, I love Texas. I'm, I'm proud to call myself a Texan. Um, but but it's a kind of a, it's a full of contradictions, which I think is what we're getting to broadly on this uh, show here. Clay, when we look at Texas and its literature, are we looking with all of that weight of the past and frontier values? Are we looking at the past or the future in Texas? Well, it, it's you know notable that um, you know the the, the big novels um, by Texas writers published recently. I mean, Sarah is an exception. Her new novel is great. It's you know, set in Okinawa, but Steve Harrigan's novel, um, remember Ben Clayton, Elizabeth Crook's novel, um, Monday, Monday mm-hmm. and Phillips, um, are all historical. Um, and so there is, you know, and, and, and that's, I think that's kind of inevitable. I mean, look at our history. It, it's pretty dramatic. It's pretty nice yeah. to write about. Um, but you know, there are writers who are also writing about the cities and in what's happening in, in the culture there, too. Uh, Sergio, what do you think? Texas is our future. Texas is our past. Oh, or all of it, just on steroids. Well, you know, I mean, I, I, I certainly um, think it's, it's a future, and it's going to be very different. Um, certainly, I see this uh, huge Latino wave in so many cities, in San Antonio and, and in El Paso and, and just, uh, you know, Dallas, etc. It's just huge and it's unrelenting and it will be a very different Texas in the future. I think it's nothing to fear, but, uh, but it's something to look forward to. Uh, anything that size, people keep a close eye on. Texas draws a lot of attention with all the issues centered there right now, and you have all helped us take a good look today. Sergio Troncoso in New York, great to have you with us today. Thank you so much for joining us, Sergio. Thank you, Tom. Sarah Bird with her latest Above the East China Sea. Sarah, thank you for joining us from Seattle today. Been delightful, Tom. Thank you. Philip Meyer of The Sun in New York today. Philip, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tom. And Clay Smith at the studios of KUT in Austin, Texas. Thank you, Clay. Thank you. Listeners, thanks for joining us. I'm Tom Ashbrook. This is On Point. (laughs) 